listening to History Man 1781, a project of ekbarns.com, where we walk in the footsteps of heroes and proclaim freedom reigns. On today's podcast, we're talking to Zach Limhouse, the York County, South Carolina historian and director of the Southern Revolutionary War Institute for the Cultural and Heritage Museums of York County. Welcome, Zach. Hey, thanks for having me again. Zach, we've talked uh, on the previous episodes, we've talked about uh, York County in general uh, and what uh, what kind of history it had in the Revolutionary War. And then we talked about the Battle of Williamson's Plantation, the Battle of Huck's Defeat. And now I think you're going to introduce us to the Battle of King's Mountain, which is also here in York County, which is Absolutely. Uh, written by historians all throughout the years since the Revolution, including Teddy Roosevelt, sure. saying it was the uh, turning point in the, in the Revolution, a turning point, especially in the Southern campaigns of the Revolution, as we led up to uh, Yorktown. So tell us about Kings Mountain. Yeah, so just a quick battle overview. We're, we're recording this podcast on, what, October 2nd now? So we're getting really close to the actual anniversary because the Battle of Kings Mountain happened on the afternoon of October 7th, 1780, uh, when a Patriot force of approximately 900 militiamen from Virginia, North Carolina, present-day Tennessee, and South Carolina engaged with a combined British force of British provincial soldiers and loyalist militia under the command of Major Patrick Ferguson. The Battle of Kings Mountain has been widely hailed by many as a turning point in the American Revolution, as you alluded. Um, In fact, in a letter to... um, John Campbell, um, Thomas Jefferson actually says that uh, it is a battle that is the turn of the tide of of success. So Thomas Jefferson himself refers to the Battle of Kings Mountain as being a, quote, turning point. I think it was. I think history bears that out. Uh, We were talking before we started the the most recent episodes, we were talking about uh, my perception of militia. Uh, especially the Patriot militia, how sure. it is, uh, it, it's kind of held in uh, in, a, in a bad light, especially sure. in, uh, from a historian standpoint and even from the regular Army, Continental Army standpoint. But really, if you get to the back country of South Carolina, the primary battles that were won were won by militia, not Absolutely. Continentals. Absolutely. The Continentals lost Charleston. Sure. The Continentals lost Camden. Under Nathaniel Green, the hero of the Continentals, he never won a major battle. It was all a stalemate, tactically correct in what he did, but the the battles that were actually won were won by militia here in the back country of South Carolina. Absolutely. They they get a, a reputation. So at the time, um, their contemporaries, um, the the British definitely saw them as cowards and a lot of the a lot of the professional soldiers, the continental soldiers, as you mentioned, they didn't see much value in what the militia were doing at the time either. But the reputation, I guess, if you think about it, comes from the fact that uh, if we think about what these men were armed with, right, your your pr- provincial soldiers, they would have been armed with a, a brown bass smoothbore musket, right? And if you are well-trained with this musket, you could probably fire it four times in a minute. So every 15 seconds, you would be able to reload and then fire. That's not what your militia are armed with. They're armed with these rifles that that they would have had or, or fowlers that they would have had over their fireplace. They're armed with what they would have used to kill animals. And these weapons take a lot longer to reload, right? Um, a full minute sometimes. Even if you're trained at reloading and firing, a full minute to reload and fire a rifle. So it makes sense that these militia would have used hit-and-run tactics like this. If you are a British soldier and I am a patriot militiaman, you can fire at me four times before I can shoot back at you once. And by the time I fire 
and start to reload, you can most likely cross the battlefield in the 60 seconds that it will take me to reload and stab me with a bayonet. So it makes sense that these, these Patriot militia, because of what they're armed with, are going to fire and then retreat and reload and then come back and fire again. So to a Patriot militiaman, this made sense. But to the British or to some of the Continental soldiers, it did. It, I can imagine it would seem very cowardly. Uh, Kings Mountain is one of those battles where that actually plays out. Absolutely. And uh, we, I look forward to hearing your uh, overview of Kings Mountain. And uh, that's about all we're going to have time for today is, is an overview. But sure. it's ex- even the overview for our listeners is going to be exciting. So thank you very much for spending time with us today. Oh, absolutely. So let's take a, a quick look at, at the combatants that are going to be at the, at the Battle of Kings Mountain. Of course, as far as the British are concerned, you have your provincial professional soldiers, but then you also have a large contingent of, of militia. They're going to be under the command of, of Major Patrick Ferguson. Now, Ferguson, just a brief overview of who Ferguson was, he's a career army officer from Scotland. Um, he was the commander of the 71st Highland Regiment. Um, And he came south with the British Expedition Force in 1780. And by all accounts, he was a great soldier and an excellent marksman. In fact, um, you're probably familiar with the fact that he invented a breech-loading rifle, uh, the Ferguson Ferguson rifle. Um, And this is a a, a really neat weapon because it's the only weapon of the time that can be loaded from a prone position, from from lying down. Um, And essentially what would happen is the trigger guard would detach and you could rotate the trigger guard and essentially unscrew the breech. It would open up the breech. You could load from the breech from the top and then close it back up and, and reattach your trigger guard um, and fire from a prone position. So unfortunately for Ferguson, though, the British Army did not see very much value in these weapons for whatever reason, which um, is very unfortunate for Ferguson because if his, his men had been armed with these Ferguson rifles, the outcome, I mean, who's to say the outcome of the battle could have been very different. That's right. Um, but he did not have he did not have these rifles. His men were armed with these rifles on September 11th, 1777, and this is a very famous story. I'm sure you've, you've heard this story before, when they encountered a Patriot force near Brandywine Creek in, in Pennsylvania. The Patriots and their unsuspecting commander had not seen Ferguson and his men yet because they were concealed in the, in the woods. And Ferguson ordered his men to, of course, fire upon the commander, but then he thought better of it. He is quoted to say, um, quote, It was not pleasant to fire at the back of an unoffending individual who was acquitting himself very coolly of his duty, so I let him alone, end quote. So Ferguson decided that it was not proper to shoot someone in the back, and, and historians, of course, believe that this person was George Washington. Um, at least that's the story. Could have been a whole different story, could, story at that, that point. That could have been all she wrote at that point, absolutely. So after the fall of Charleston in May of, of 1780, British High Command actually established several outposts in the backcountry, and we've talked about these outposts in previous podcasts together. Um, we know there's the outpost at Hanging Rock, where Turnbull is going to send—I'm um, sorry, Rocky Mount, where Turnbull is going to send soldiers to attack the Ironworks, Hills Ironworks. He also sends Huck from there to attack Williamson's plantation. But we also have 96, we have Hanging Rock, we have Camden, and when Charleston falls in, in May of 1780, Cornwallis is going to detach Ferguson from the 71st Highlanders. He's going to detach him from there, and he's going to send him to 96, which is in modern-day Greenwood County. And on the way, between Charleston 
and 96, Ferguson is going to be put in charge of raising militias. He is appointed now the Inspector General of Militias. That is his, his new job title. Um, and Ferguson, on his way from Charleston to 96, he's going to recruit 4,000 men approximately by the time he reaches 96. So 96 is actually a contested area in the, in the state. It, it, the fort itself went back and forth it between the Loyalists and the Patriots all throughout. From the very beginning. From, from the very beginning, Abs- 1775. They, they even switched loyalties in the middle of, of part of the campaign right there at the beginning Absolutely. Of the war. Very ho- highly contested contested outpost there. Right. So when uh, when he reaches, like I said, 496, he's got about, about 4,000 men. So the majority of the men at Kings Mountain fighting for the British are going to be loyalists. Now, he does, of course, have some provincial soldiers with him. His second in command, a guy named Abraham de Peister, he's actually in command of the King's Carolina Rangers, so he does have a provincial force there. And, of course, the uh, New Jersey Volunteers are going to be there, their provincial. Delancey's Brigade will be there, their provincial. And some American volunteers will also be provincial. But the vast majority, it is important to keep in mind, of Ferguson's force are our loyalist militia. And then, of course, you have your patriots. Now, just like at the Battle of Williamson's Plantation, the patriot forces are exclusively militia. At Williamson's Plantation, the patriots are all militia. Uh, The same is going to hold true for Kings Mountain. I think we made this distinction earlier. It is important to understand that just because the patriots are militia and that they are untrained does not mean that they are unexperienced. They they are not professional soldiers. They, they aren't. But a lot of them have been fighting in this revolution since the very beginning. We've talked about this misconception that South Carolinians were just kind of sitting on their hands until the fall of Charleston in 1780, and then the war came. They, a lot of them had been fighting from the very, from the very beginning. Uh, so they were truly experienced soldiers by this point in the American Revolution. So I, I'm not going to go over all—I mean, I could, but it would— to go over all of the Patriot militias and their commanders sure. um, might be a little much for just this this brief overview, but we could we can talk about just a just a couple. I mean, of course, we got uh, William Campbell, um, John Severe is very important. Isaac Shelby, um, William Chronicle actually loses his life at this at this particular at this particular engagement. Edward Lacey is is present. Of course, Edward Lacey was also present at the Battle of, of Williamson's Plantation. He was in charge of the Chester. Uh, militia. We have too many to go to go into. Of course, there's Frederick Ambright. He's he's a he's a, a local hero of of the Battle of Kings Mountain. So uh, a large force of of patriots, like I said, from um, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and what today we consider Tennessee, um, the Over Mountain men, as Ferguson is going to refer to them. So on in August of of 1780. Cornwallis is going to make plans um, to march up the east side of the Catawba River into Charlotte. Ferguson was ordered to penetrate into western North Carolina as far as Gilberttown, which is in uh, modern-day Rutherfordton. After this point, the two armies were planning on linking up. So in September of 1780, Ferguson reaches Gilberttown on the 7th. Uh, he was aware that the Whig militia in the backcountry was gaining a lot of strength. There had, of course, been several Patriot victories. We've talked about several of them on previous podcasts. Um, of course, the one near and dear to me is Williamson's Plantation. But of particular concern to Ferguson was the frontier militia from the, quote, Overmountain settlements. Um, he referred to these as the Overmountain men in what is now Tennessee. So on September 10th, Ferguson's going to send a warning 
across the Blue Ridge Mountains to Shelby and his men. Um, because Shelby was a uh, commander uh, in, in the Overmountain settlements, right? So he's going to send a warning to General Shelby and his men. And this is where Ferguson kind of falls into the same kind of tactics as Huck and Tarleton, these very brutal um, tactics that were intended to scare patriots into submission when in reality it enraged them into action. And I think I've said that before on, on one of your podcasts, that, that these— why, this, why do you think that is? Why do you think this particular section of the state was less cowed by those threats than maybe the lowlands? I don't know. That's a great question. I mean, what the British really had on their hands was a counterinsurgency at this point. I mean, I, I'm not sure why they felt making, making threats like this— was going to be going to be helpful because there is a long-standing. I guess to answer your question, there is a hatred of the British from before the American Revolution. Think of the people that uh, inhabit this area. These people from the lowlands of Scotland, from the Ulster Plantation in, in Northern Ireland, they are not strangers to interactions with the British. Their ancestors, their history as Scottish people, they're not strangers to the British. And a lot of the relationship between Scottish people and the British has been kind of played out on the on the uh, battlefields of South Carolina. Did absolutely. Yeah. So these these settlers already come with a hatred of the British kind of ingrained in them, if that makes sense. So these tactics, these brutal tactics of trying to scare them into submission, just did not work in this case because there was already an an, an anger and a hatred there. So. Just like it did with, with you know, Tarleton um, after the Battle of the Waxhaws. Um, Tarleton's quarter uh, is going to be invoked here at, at the Battle of Kings Mountain. Just like with Huck um, burning uh, a meeting house and Hill's ironworks and enraging patriots into action at, at Huck's defeat. Um, this message that Ferguson is going to send on September 10th is, is going to have very much the same effect. And, of course... Most of your listeners are, are familiar with this with this message that he sends, but essentially what he says is that if the rebels do not, quote, desist from their opposition to British arms, end quote, that he would march his army over the mountains and, quote, lay their country waste with fire and sword, end quote. So you can imagine how this was received by the backcountry patriots. Um, not too well. Uh, so... Shelby immediately sends out a call for volunteers. The volunteers are to meet up at Sycamore Shoals on the Watauga River on um, the 25th. So these are volunteers that are set up in the militia system. Absolutely. So everyone, and this is a militia system that has been around in the English way of life. Every man in the in a community, starting from about age 15 or 16, on up to the age of 55, 60, somewhere in there, were required to muster at a certain time of the year, correct? Sure, and, and as I mentioned in an earlier podcast, the um, the militias were, at least in the backcountry of South Carolina, they were raised based on the electoral district you were in. So if you were in the new acquisition electoral district, you had a militia for that electoral district. I see. Um, so it's not just you going door to door and say, hey, come on out here with your shotgun. These people are have already gotten used to mustering. They're already they used were well to established, well yes. established, well established militias, and they had a hierarchy of command and that sort of thing already in place uh, before they even get called up to a battle like Kings Mountain. Absolutely, I, you know, I'm sure that you there was a degree of you know people grabbing their rifles and running out the front sure. door, but 
that I, I think that is probably less likely. I think the majority of the people, the patriots here, were in well-established militias prior to this engagement. And when they heard of this message from Ferguson, it enraged them so much that they were more than happy to meet at Sycamore Shoals on September 25th at, at this rendezvous point to meet up prior to the Battle of Kings Mountain. So um, Shelby and John Sevier set out for this rendezvous point with about 240 men each. Um, so what, that's 480 men total. And after the Patriot forces met at Sycamore Shoals, they proceed to Gilberttown, where they believe Ferguson is still camping. So in October 3rd, the Patriots reach Gilberttown, and they find that Ferguson is not there. He's moved on. And we discussed this earlier off off microphone that um, that's where they meet Edward Lacey, right, of the Chester Chester County Militia. Edward Lacey, of course, was at the Battle of Williamson's Plantation, and he's the one that's going to inform the Patriots that Ferguson and his men are now marching towards Kings Mountain. So at this point, Ferguson sends a message to, to Cornwallis on October 6th, and he informs him that he's planning on making his stand against the Patriots at Kings Mountain. And he um, decides that his place where he's going to make his stand against the Patriots is going to be on Kings Mountain for one reason or another. Um, Ferguson evidently felt like this would be a, a good location. He has the high ground, but we're going to find out that, of course, anyone that's familiar with the battle knows that this really does not work out in Ferguson's favor to, the, to choose this particular location. The lay of the land, which is a little different as far as it is now, correct? Because back then it was a longleaf pine type of forest, timber forest, where you had these huge pine trees on this knoll and you could actually see through the forest for the most part. Right now you have more hardwoods, you have a lot of rhododendron, you have a lot of understory up there on the sure. side of the mountain, whereas before it was mostly pine. Yeah, well, I think I think you're correct and, and um, I could be wrong, but I do believe that Kings Mountain National Military Park um, does routine control burns of the underbrush because one it's good for the land to do that but two it, it gives you a, a better idea of, of what it, sure. it would have looked like you're right it would not have been quite so overgrown um, the battlefield has changed a lot since since october 7th 1780 uh, so he sends a message ferguson sends a message to cornwallis saying that he's going to uh, make his stand on king's mountain and he also asks for reinforcements um, because I think at this point Ferguson realizes that perhaps his message did not have the effect that he had hoped it was going to have, that he had stirred up a hornet's nest, so to speak. So he asks for reinforcements. I think he's still pretty confident. I think Ferguson is still pretty confident that he he can win, but he, he is concerned. He is concerned that this might not be quite as easy as he initially thought. So he reaches out for reinforcements, and unfortunately for Ferguson, that is, um, both Cornwallis and Tarleton are sick at the time with a fever, and they're not really well enough to respond to this request in a timely fashion to actually help Ferguson out. And as the Patriot force marches towards Kings Mountain, they're joined by several other South Carolina regiments. So remember, we have Virginia regiments, North Carolina regiments, and at this point, they're starting their march towards Kings Mountain, and they're joined up by South Carolina regiments. So by the time they get there, they're about 900 strong, approximately the number that we have in the Patriot militia. So on October 7th, the day of the actual battle, the Patriots are within a mile of Kings Mountain. Around noon, um, they decide to divide their forces and attack from multiple sides. It's interesting because this is very similar to the same tactic that, we, that was used at 
the Battle of Williamson's Plantation. If you remember from our conversation on Williamson's Plantation, um, they decide to divide their forces into two between Bratton and Lacey. They do a very similar thing here, but they divide it into many more different groups, and they decide to attack from all different sides of King's Mountain. So at 3 p.m., Ferguson's men spot the first rebels that they see, and they, they open fire on them, and the first shots of the Battle of King's Mountain occur around 3 p.m. on October 7, 1780. Ferguson's decision to make a stand on King's Mountain was a poor one, as we've discussed before. There are too many trees, and the, the terrain is very rocky, um, to execute any kind of standard British military tactics that Ferguson is usually, used to implementing. It also provides perfect cover for the Patriots. The Patriots are, you've heard this quote before, giving the British, quote, Indian play, right? Moving from tree to tree, rock to rock. Fighting in a very characteristic style that, that we've referred to several times on, on our, po- our podcast together. Uh, this kind of hit-and-run tactic that the militia were known for. And this, this will be the undoing of the British at the Battle of, the Battle of King's Mountain. Ferguson is going to attempt several bayonet charges, but they are ultimately unsuccessful due to the terrain. And the high ground that Ferguson hoped he was going to get actually works to his disadvantage because a lot of the uh, British bullets are actually going to go over the heads of the Patriots, so they're not going to find, find their mark. So Ferguson's men just become encircled by the Patriots that are ascending this Monadnock, right? Because King's Mountain is not really a mountain. It's more of a Monadnock. Define that. Monadnock. That's a great question. Um, instead of being pointed at the top, I believe Monadnocks are, are flatter at yeah. the top. They kind of they kind of stop. So it's almost like a saddle. It, absolutely. Um, if, you, if you think about a saddle and sitting in a saddle on top of the horse, that's kind of what this mountain kind of looks like. You have an area that's almost flat absolutely. on the top where they're camping and they're setting up their camp and put out their pickets and daring anyone to come up the side of that mountain. Of course, they did. Right. Sure. But uh, it's not like uh, the craggy mountains you think about in the Rockies or or up in the uh, Black Hills of of the Dakotas or something like that. Absolutely. We're talking more of a knoll. That is an important distinction to make. And I'm glad that kind of came up organically in our conversation because it it is um, that is an important important distinction. So these patriots have surrounded Ferguson. Um, They are ascending this Monadnock uh, from all sides um, and his. Traditional British tactics just aren't working. And as they become further encircled, these, uh, these British become further encircled, um, they begin to raise flags of surrender. They're, they're, they realize they're done. Ferguson does not allow this to happen. There are reports of him riding by at this point. He's atop his horse. He is wearing, as the story goes, as we all know, a, a checkered hunting shirt, right? And he's blowing a silver whistle, and he's waving a saber, giving orders. And as he sees these white flags of surrender, there are reports that he's knocking them down um, with his saber. Tell me a little bit about the silver whistle. He's blowing a silver whistle. What was the whistle for? So from what I understand, um, Ferguson had been um, injured prior to the Battle of King's Mountain, and he had his arm in a sling. Um, He actually had to teach himself how to fight with his saber left-handed as opposed to to being right-handed. And and his silver whistle was aiding in his ability, I would uh, assume, to to give commands, right, Uh, over over the the sounds of gunfire, right? But uh, again, it it made him a uh, obvious target. I mean, imagine someone sitting on a on horseback, waving a, a saber in the air, blowing on this silver whistle to to command his men around the field, um, and and here he is knocking down these these flags flags of surrender. 
making a point to his, to his men that we're not going to surrender. We're, we're going to fight. We're not going to be beat by, by the Patriots. And of course, we know that he most certainly will be, will be beat by uh, the Patriots. So the fact that, as we said, he is mounted wearing this checkered shirt, waving the saber, blowing the silver whistle, he's a prime target. Just like we mentioned Huck in the Battle of Huck's Defeat being a prime target because he uh, went without his green dragoon coat, Ferguson is a prime target because of this um, checkered shirt. Uh, it stands in contrast to what his men are wearing and, and the, the silver whistle and being on horseback. And he is struck with eight to ten musket balls almost simultaneously as soon as the uh, Patriots realize who he is. Now, there's a, a story that I was hesitant to tell because um, this can easily be chalked up to a myth. Just like so much of what we've discussed with the story of, of Watt, right, um, the African-American slave that that delivered a message to William Bratton to inform him of Huck. Um, there's a lot of these stories that are just told that are really interesting, but unfortunately there's not always evidence to corroborate. Doesn't mean they're not true. Do, doesn't mean they're not true. Not the, there's the evidence is lacking. Just yeah. means it's hard to prove that That's it's right. true. Prove it or disprove it. So one of the stories is that Ferguson had some mistresses. I'm sure you've heard this story before. Had two. He had two, and they were both named Virginia. Virginia Sal and Virginia Paul, from what I understand. And um, apparently I'd always both heard... Both in camp with him. <laughs> I, both in camp. I'd always heard that, that Ferguson really enjoyed having two mistresses named Virginia because he felt that no matter which Virginia, he was whispering sweet nothings to. He was never going to call her by his other mistress's name. At least that's the story I had always I had always heard. So one popular story is that one of the two Virginias was very angry that she was not the only Virginia, and she rides down the hill towards the Patriots and, of course, identifies what Ferguson is wearing to kind of get back at him, right? So that's the story. Um, no telling how much truth there is to that particular story. But regardless, Ferguson is struck almost instantly with 8 to 10 musket balls. I have heard 8, 9, um, I've heard 10, so 8 to 10. And uh, the force of these musket balls hitting him almost simultaneously throws him from his horse. And he gets his, his foot caught in the stirrup and dragged, dragged down the side of, of King's Mountain. DePeister, his second in command, is now in command, and he attempts to rally the remaining British troops. But... Uh, and ultimately, they decide to surrender, and DePeister is is fine with this decision. He is not knocking down the flags of surrender like Ferguson was. I think with the death, the obvious death of Ferguson, I mean, because he's he's dead. Um, DePeister realizes the time to surrender is now. But unfortunately for the British and DePeister, the Patriots are not going to give them that option. They're going to give them Tarleton's Quarter. And, of course, Tarleton's Quarter after the Battle of the Waxhaws, also known as the Battle of Buford's Massacre, Tarleton's Quarter becomes synonymous with giving no quarter at all, right? Um, It's a play on words, really, is is what it is. If you give Tarleton's Quarter, you're not going to allow someone to surrender. The Patriots definitely do not allow the British to surrender. Um, And altogether, uh, the Battle of Kings Mountain lasts, lasts approximately an hour, give or take. The Loyalist casualties numbered around 157 killed, with another 163 wounded on the battlefield. Some of them were so wounded that they, they couldn't be moved off the battlefield, and they died. They died right there. There are some captured. There are about 698, approximately, Loyalists that are taken prisoner. And the following day, they take them back to Gilbert Town, and the Whigs hold a trial, and 12 of these men are condemned to death, but only nine are active, actively hanged. So it is important to realize that casualties continued uh, after the battle itself. 
Um, the Patriots held these trials and started hanging people till some of the Patriot commanders could kind of regain control of the situation. Well, they weren't hanging them for the for the battle itself. They were hanging them for incidents that occurred prior to the battle, almost Absolutely. like a feudal type of uh, or feud between combatants, you know, on the home fronts. So. Absolutely. I'm sure the men that died were, were being hung more for British atrocities than any atrocity that they may have actually personally, of course, committed, right? right? Um, they, they, were, they were being hung for um, British atrocities throughout the second Southern campaign, I would imagine. Um, just uh, just in, in, in retaliation. For whatever reason, the leaders had their taste of it and then put a, put a stop to it and, uh, and went on the march again. Absolutely. And, and I think we see, we see that occur when DePeister's trying to surrender and they give, they give Tarleton's quarter. I think at a certain point, the leaders, the Patriot leaders, do get their taste. But, I mean, obviously not everyone is killed because there are 698 prisoners taken. Right. So, obviously, at some point... Cooler heads do prevail in both of these situations, and the, the Patriot leaders bring an end an end to it. Um, but regardless, the Battle of Kings Mountain was called, like I said earlier in the podcast, a turning point by Thomas Jefferson himself in a letter where he says the Battle of Kings Mountain is the turn of the tide of success. Sir Henry Clinton, the commander-in-chief of all British forces in North America at the time, he's going to say that Kings Mountain was the first link of a chain of evils that followed each other in regular succession until they at last ended in the total loss of America. So Henry Clinton, the commander-in-chief of all British forces in North America, realizes that Battle of Kings Mountain is, is truly a, a turning point in the revolution. From Kings Mountain, you have, uh, you have the Battle of Blackstocks where Charlton is defeated. Uh, then you have the Battle of Cowpens. Then you have the Race to the Dan, Guilford Courthouse, then Yorktown. Of course. And, uh, so a succession of de- defeats, uh, and it all started in the upcountry of South Carolina. So thank you so much for telling us about the history of York County. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about what you want people to, to take from their, their visit to York County and your museums here. So we've discussed this several times, but I do work for the Culture and Heritage Museums of York County. We are a uh, family of museums that has four different museums. Um, we, of course, have Historic Brattonsville that I encourage your listeners to, to come out and take a look. Um, I'd be more than happy to, to show them around. They're more than welcome to, to call my office. My direct line is uh, 803-818-6768. That's my office line. Or you can shoot me an email at zlemhouse. That's Z-L-E-M-H-O-U-S-E at chmuseums.org. Um, let me know you're coming. I'm happy to show you around um, the site. Brattonsville is an awesome place to visit. Um, so I hope you'll come out. You can also visit um, our Natural History Museum or the Main Street Children's Museum in Rock Hill, South Carolina, if you have young children. That museum is currently under renovation, but when it's reopened, it is modeled after the art of Rock Hill artist Vernon Grant. Um, so the kids really will enjoy that, so bring them out. Um, and, of course, we have the Kelvey Center campus um, where my office is. Uh, we house the Southern Revolutionary War Institute, which is a scholarly um, library that focuses on the research of the Southern campaigns. So I hope that that visitors to our sites um, or to York County in general will take away the fact that we have such a rich and diverse history here in York County. So much has happened, not just Revolutionary War, but Civil War and, and, and Reconstruction especially. There's so much history here that if you take the time to dig a little bit, um, 
we've talked a lot about going down rabbit holes uh, on and off the microphone. It is um, very easy to do when you start getting into York County history. When you have a, a region of the country that is as rich in history as York County, it is easy to do. So thank you so much. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it.